Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us so many things. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word as well. And Father, we pray that today we'd, we'd learn from it. Though. And Father, we pray that you would point us to the Lord Jesus and, and to you in worship. Father, we pray that we will learn um, about Ezra. We pray that we'll learn about Jesus. And we pray that we'll learn about ourselves and how we can apply it to us to make us more like your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I've called this Better Late Than Never. Ian has, uh, has mentioned that something that is really easy to be overlooked in this book is it's called Ezra. We've, been, we've looked at Ezra's chapters 1 to 6. We've been talking about Ezra all the way through. But he's not actually turned up. Okay? He's not been there. He's been like the elephant in the room almost, but, but without actually being in the room. He's, uh, he's not even appeared yet. But in this chapter, he does turn up. So we'll, we'll look at what, what we're getting to with that. So this has been our timeline that showed us what's sort of been going on, where the chapters fit into the history. Um, and the little star up there is where we are today. So that's, um, yeah, Ezra chapter 7 to the end of the book. There's those couple of years there under the reign of a chap called Artaxerxes. Um, and that's what we were looking at the other week as the temple was finished. So when at the start of Ezra chapter 7 it says, after these things... There's a 57-year gap between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7, verse 1. Now, I'm not a publisher, but if I was a publisher and I was thinking, you know, somebody's written me like six chapters of a book and the next bit just says, after these things, but they put that in 57 years later, I'd probably be a bit miffed. So, that's where we're up to in history and let's have a look at what's gone on so far. So, we've seen up to now, under Cyrus, Zerubbabel came... He went back to Jerusalem. He started to rebuild the temple. Then there was a bit of a gap. And under the reign of Darius, the temple was completed somewhere a couple of years after he took the throne. And then, uh, as we go through, if you know the story of, in the book of Ezra, uh, Esther, not in Ezra, in the book of Esther, that happens sort of between the temple being completed and where we are today. So the king called Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, depending on the translation, um, he is the one that marries Esther, and all that goes on in between this time. So if you want a great book to read, read Esther in the meantime. That'll give you a bit of history, but it might confuse you thoroughly. So then, yeah, the temple's completed over here. There's 57 years gap. Artaxerxes becomes king, and that's where we are today. And at that point, Ezra comes to Jerusalem, and Ezra comes to reform Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel came basically to rebuild what was broken down. And Ezra has come to reform the city uh, that has lost any kind of uh, godliness, it seems, when he gets there. And after that, as we've been looking at in our growth groups, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem a few years later, and he returns to rebuild the city walls that surround Jerusalem to keep it safe. There's a massive contrast, really. Zerubbabel comes back, and he just finds ruins. Zerubbabel gets there, and it's just a, um, just a heap of stones on the floor in this great city like this city that used to be so great. It was God's city. It used to be amazing, but it was just a heap of junk when he got there. He returned, they rebuilt the altar, and a few years later, a good few years later, they'd managed to rebuild the temple as well. But the thing that hadn't changed was people's hearts. People's hearts had remained the same. So the gap that we're seeing is the time that's been allowed for these people. They've got, they've got the temple, they've got their altar, they're able to sacrifice but in their hearts, they don't really love God. They don't really know what's going on. Ezra comes, not to rebuild buildings, but he comes to rebuild faith 
in people's hearts. So Zerubbabel came to rebuild the physical. Ezra is coming to reform the spiritual from the inside out. So here we go. This is the passage that Angela read to us. And I've split it up into five. Um, so they're the, the bits that we'll look through this, this afternoon. Right then. So the first bit. This genealogy. So there's six verses here that start off with a genealogy. So it says, after these things, that's a 57 year gap, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, he'd eventually turned up six chapters into the book, he crops in chapter 7, verse 1. Son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meraith, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishui, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. Practice that all week, just so I can get it off quicker. So that's what's happening. That's where this chapter starts. And the thing is, when we come to the Bible... And we find that somebody is given that sort of introduction. That's not just Job Logs or Job Logs, as it might be if he was in the Bible. It is somebody of importance. Somebody who is, you know, as soon as they say, this is so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, that's important. You know, there's something important there. When he's got like three or four, he's a bit more important. When he's got a list that takes him back to Aaron, this is somebody who's really important. Okay. If you have put a genealogy in the Bible, you may as well roll out the red carpet, blow a fanfare of trumpets, and like, da-da-da-da, Ezra. But they give you all the background so that they know who it is. So this is, like, massive for someone. If you've got that many names saying this is your lineage and your name follows it, then you're somebody really important in the book. So when we get to Ezra, we find out that he's a priest. He is descended from Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and Aaron, to put it like in simple terms, Aaron is Mr. Priest. Okay, he's just the chap who is, you know, the top priest. He started out; they came out of Egypt, him and Moses, and he was, you know, the top priest really back then. And this is a line of priests that gets us down to Ezra. But it's amazing that God chooses a priest here. It's really important. They've got a temple. They've got an altar. They don't need an architect, they've got their buildings. But what they do need is a priest. If you're a priest, you can go into the temple. If you're a priest, you can make sacrifices. If they hadn't picked a priest, if it had been, you know, you or I, we'd get there, we'd turn up and we'd think, oh, I'll just pop into that nice building over there, sort a few things out, and we'd get nowhere near it. I mean, as Gentiles, we'd not be allowed within like the inner courts, not even the building. But for a Jew, they could get a bit closer. But for a priest, they could get right to the temple itself. So they needed a priest to be able to get to the temple and sort out things from the middle. He could make sacrifices. He could you know, kill the animals and accept the offerings that the people had brought so that sins could be forgiven. Basically, Ezra is coming to add flesh to the bones. So this, this great temple that they built and the altar is like the bones that they built. And Ezra is going to come and make it a living thing by strapping on you know, all the, the law, the love that God has for his people, all these things, Ezra adds to it with the teaching and the love of God so that this sort of shell of something becomes a real living and exciting thing for the people. Second thing we know that about Ezra is he's quite privileged. You know, he worked under the king and he was well-educated, which is quite a good thing, really. So he's, he worked under the king. So in exile, it wasn't 
like sort of forced slavery that sometimes we might think about it, they were taken out of their, their homeland, but a lot of people did quite well. Like Daniel, we learn, Jai's doing a series in Daniel, which is also going on around the same sort of time as Ezra. Daniel worked for the king, he was really well looked after. Uh, Ezra worked for the king, and he was very well educated. And another thing for him, he was probably somewhere in his mid-twenties. I've not done the research on that, but I take it from a reliable source that Ezra was somewhere in his mid-twenties. And he was coming to teach the law to the people in Jerusalem. And I think there's some great things about Ezra being young. He knows that there's a challenge that he's going to face. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to go. He knows that there's a challenge there. So being younger, you'd hope that he has you know, that, that sort of youthful passion and zeal that he can bring to the battle. He knows he's going to have to sort of face off people who are probably a lot older than him. He's going to have to you know, stand and like, face them face to face. Actually, what you're doing is wrong. This is what God's word says. You have to deal with it, which is going to be difficult. And I also reckon he might have that sort of youthful idiocy about him as well, which is probably a bit irreverent. But I think when you're a bit younger, you've not seen all the, the things that have gone on before. And you say, why the heck are you doing what you're doing? Because you, you don't know all the history that's gone on. So you can say, but that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Can you not see why what you're doing is just insane? Well, I think Ezra's got a bit of that hopefully going on for himself. I also thought then, actually, if Ezra is in his mid-twenties, what a great sort of challenge it is for us here. Like, how would you feel about some young chap in his mid-twenties coming to a church, teaching things, leading things? I mean, would you be willing to listen? Or would you just think, oh, there, there. No, just pat him on the head. Say, That's very, very nice, very nice. Go on, show off. You know, but well, would you listen? Would you actually say, maybe this person's got something to teach me? I was also then confused when I realised Ezra who loves God, who is obedient to God, he's a priest. Where's he been? He's been in Babylon. Why is Ezra still in Babylon? After all these years when God's people are in Jerusalem, after the, uh, the first couple of waves, uh, the first wave that went back to Zerubbabel. The first answer to that is, the gap between uh, chapter 6 and 7 is 57 years. If Ezra is in his mid-twenties, he wasn't born. So that's not his fault. But... Some of the priests would have had to remain behind, I guess, in Babylon. For some of the Jews that couldn't make the journey, if they'd been like old, ill, or they'd had tiny children, they didn't want to make the move, some of the priests would have had to remain behind to actually faithfully serve those people who had been left there. So I thought, actually, maybe I was a bit harsh on some of the Levites when we looked at chapter 2. I said they were basically idle for not going back to Jerusalem when God called them, but maybe that's not quite true. Maybe they were being faithful in serving and ministering to those people that were left behind. And I don't want to cast aspersions, but Daniel was probably about 80 at this point when the, this trip was going to happen. Um, and if Ezra had gone, Daniel, are you going to come with us, great man of God? I could use your help. And he says, no, I'm 80, I'm staying put. I don't think it's you know, fair to say that Daniel was not faithful and wasn't listening to God. Sometimes, um, if you're 80, you don't want to walk 900 miles in four months. I think if I went and asked uh, Hannah's grandpa, who told me that he's 97 this month, uh, if he would like to do that, he'd probably say, oh, I'd quite like to. But I'm just not going to, in a very gentle way. So that's the first bit. We see this genealogy. We learn that Ezra is massively important, that he's a priest, he's been very privileged, and he's quite young. And the reason he's still in Babylon, you know, there are good reasons for him to be there. So the next bit is God's favour to him. So as we read the rest of that uh, sixth verse, we see that he was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the, law, uh, which the Lord the God of Israel had given. 
The king had granted him everything he asked, and the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Okay, so firstly, Ezra, he knows the law. The law that God's given, he knows it. And this isn't just like the Ten Commandments in the book of Leviticus, which tells you how to, you know, what to do and what not to do with, you know, all sorts of different things, your sacrifices and your, your mildew in your house, uh, rats and all these sorts of things. It's not just the do's and the don't do's. The law that Ezra has got that he knows is what the Jews might call the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. So they've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those first five books is what he knows. And he knows that it isn't just a book of rules. He knows that what he's reading, what he's teaching and what he loves is his nations, his peoples, it's their history, it's like the people's ancestry and it is the work of God that he's seen. And he knows that if God can do what he did back then, he can do anything now. And the other thing is he knows exactly where this law came from. It wasn't just a book he stumbled across one day, but he knows that this law came from God himself. And the last thing is he knows what the Lord does. He knows that this law can work in people's hearts and it can change them to become the people that God wants them to be. As you read through like Genesis and Exodus, and those, you read stories of absolute ratbags, it's brilliant when you read through. You just think this is, so, this is such a real honest family that you see. And they're, they're horrible, some of them. Really, really nasty people. And you get a chap like Judah, and he was a real tear away. He ran off from his family. He spent time doing all sorts of unscrupulous things. And it's him that ultimately was cha- his heart was changed by God. He came back to his brother. He looked after him. He brought his brothers back together. And ultimately, Jesus descends from him. If you read what Judah was like in the beginning of Genesis, and then you realise that Jesus is one of his descendants, you would think, my goodness me, God has done something amazing with that man. So then... So Ezra was under the, uh, under the king Artaxerxes. But here, as we read through this story, we see that the king provides for Ezra in what he's doing. Because when Ezra travels back to Jerusalem, he has to be given permission from the king to go back. So Ezra is given permission and he's provided for by this king. And this king is not a God-fearer himself. He probably thinks of himself something on par with, with the gods that they had, uh, the gods of Persia. But he was quite a sort of shrewd king. He, he freed a lot of nations that they'd taken into captivity um, from when uh, Babylon was in charge. The Babylonian Empire sort of reigned. He, they let a lot of them go back, rebuild their temples, as long as they prayed for him in his temple. And, yeah, and because of his provision, the king actually granted him a whole load of people to go back with him uh, when he goes back to Jerusalem. Which is not quite as cheeky, I don't think, as if you read Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah goes in and he the king eventually basically says to him, well, what, what would you like to do, Nehemiah? Nehemiah's the cupbearer to the king. And he says, well, to be honest, king, I'd quite like, I'd like to go home. He says, okay. He says, but I'd like to go home. I'd like to have safe passage, so give me a letter to take me through all the, the foreigners that I'm going to go through. I also want to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, so I'll need wood, stone, you know, help, and also I'd like some stuff to build my house with. Um, so basically he's just really cheeky in there, my chapter 1. But again, the king grants him that too. And that's later on in history from Ezra. But yeah. So these things are all uh, instrumental in God's mission taking place in Jerusalem. Artaxerxes thinks that he is the highest authority in the entire world. Ultimately, he's just dancing to God's tune. He's like a puppet on a string for God. He may think he's the most powerful person in the world. But ultimately, God is saying, 
you know, these people need to go back. I'll change his heart so that these people will go back to Jerusalem. Artaxerxes is nothing in comparison to the power that God has. And ultimately, Ezra knows that God is with him. There's a great phrase that comes up in this verse, in uh, chapter 7, verse 6, when it says, For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now, this is not the only time Ezra, this comes up in the book of Ezra or Nehemiah. It comes up a, like a chunk of times, and we have two in this chapter. And Ezra says that the hand of his God was on him. I think it's great that Ezra knows that God is shaping his life. He's leading him in the way that he, he needs to go. And I think the reason he knows that is because he understands God's word. And we've been reading a book, me and Jai, I think we may have told you this sort of, you know, six months, eight months ago, we were reading this book and we're still not quite finished. But there's a great passage in this book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God, not by J.I. Packer, but um, talking about guidance. And he says, he says this, Earnest Christians seeking guidance often go wrong about it. Why is this? Often... The reason is that their notion and nature and method of divine guidance is distorted. Their basic mistake is to think as guidance, essentially inward prompting by the Holy Spirit, apart from the written word. I think it's, it's trying to say those, look, when people are trying to seek guidance from God, they just sort of may, may ask God to help them to do certain things and they'll just wait for him to like give them an internal poke in the head say, go and do this. But what is his sort of thought behind that is, if you know the word of God and you think God's telling you to do something and if God's word and the things that you're sort of feeling God is telling you to do marry up, then it's probably right. He says in his book that if you think God's ever like telling you to elope with a married woman or you know, go and kill somebody, you're just going to be insane because God's word says those things are wrong. So to go and claim that they're right and do them with God's um, blessing you know, is completely wrong. But Ezra knows that God is guiding him through this. And ultimately, if we know God's words, we'll understand when God is guiding us through. So Ezra has a bunch of companions that he takes back with him as we uh, head on through this passage. So it says in verse 7, Some of the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, singers, gatekeepers and temple servants, also came to Jerusalem in the seventh year uh, of King Artaxerxes. So he gets a whole group of people to go back with him. So firstly, Ezra has royal backing on this. As he said, that the king is under, is under God's authority in whatever he does. So ultimately, the king says, Ezra, you can go back and you can take these people. Ezra could then have gone to the Jews and said, great, we, we can go. We can go back to Jerusalem. And they could just go, no chance, mate. I'm not having that because I'm quite comfortable. I've got a nice house and all this. But actually, the Jews back him as well. And they go with him. So there's a bit of a, yeah. The king says they can go. The Jews want to go. So Ezra has permission from the king, has permission to take these people back with him. He also takes a, a really wide variety. He takes effectively an extra chunk of temple staff. If he's going to go back, he knows his job. To reform the city is not going to be a one-man job. He needs the help of these people around him. He knows that he's going to need people with all sorts of different gifts able to help serve in the temple. And I think that these Jews that are going back must know that there are problems there. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to go back. When I was reading through it, it just felt like, you know, you could put the theme tune to Ghostbusters in here. You can imagine them walking from, like, Babylon to Jerusalem with the Ghostbusters theme going ahead, thinking, like, who are we going to call? Ezra and his mates. It's not quite as catchy as Ghostbusters. But, you know, these are the people that are coming in to sort out the problem that's there. 
Ezra and his mates here are the ghostbusters of their day. But I think there's a great challenge, isn't there, that you may not be the leader, but these people have to back Ezra up in all the things that he's doing. If he brings his team back and then they decide to, you know, to, you know, like go and just settle down somewhere and not help, or we think, oh, we're, we're halfway, this is, looks like a nice place, I'll just stop here and let you carry on. All these people that he's taking back need to be on side. They need to constantly be backing Ezra up. They need to be supporting him. They need to be encouraging him. They need to be praying for him. Because otherwise, he's not going to be able to complete his mission. He's got his people to help him, but they need to back him up for him to be able to do what God wants him to do. And I think there's a great challenge in there for, for anyone involved in any kind of God's work. If we're part of churches, we need to be really getting behind and supporting and praying for those people who are leading different things. And it's a great encouragement for people to actually have been praying for you about this, about this thing that you're going through. And you, you, know, you may not even know that they're doing it, but, but it's just great to hear that people are praying for, for different aspects of the church work. Uh, we sat at the back this morning, um, and Jane was praying. And after Jane prayed, Rennie lifted up his head and he said, that was nice, that. I said, you should go and tell her afterwards. I thought it was really encouraging that he thought that his prayers were excellent this morning. So he might come and tell you afterwards, he might not. But I told him to. So yeah, he had the backing of the people that he took. Next, they, they get to Jerusalem. There's an arrival in Jerusalem. And where are we up to? We're up to verse 8. It says, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. So this trip from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem, uh, apparently it's a very well-known route. It was very dangerous at the time, well-known to bandits. It's apparently about 500 miles of the the crow flies from one city to the other, but it takes 900 miles to walk because you have to go around certain parts. Um, And because of that, the bandits knew where to sit and they could mug you on the way, especially if they knew you were carrying gold and silver, as these people were, and plenty of it. And it's a four-month trip, which, you know, it's not short, is it? I mean, for us to, to take that, that trip, we'd probably fly, do it in a couple of hours, and, and enjoy it, apart from the sort of waiting in each airport, getting your passport checked. They walk, they get their shoes on, their coats on, and they walk all that way. Apparently there is about an 11-day delay, though, to start off with, we don't know exactly how many, at this point, Ezra brings back from Babylon to Jerusalem. But if you imagine in there there's a few old people and a few kids, and there's like a couple of hundred of them, let's say. If you say, right, we're about to go, all the old people are then like queue for the toilet, all the kids are going looking for their shoes, and it would just be an absolute logistical nightmare, wouldn't it? So have you got your shoes on? Why have you got two left shoes on? Go and find it. Stop hitting your brother. Where's Grandpa? Is he? Oh, he's in the toilet again. Right, wait. And then 11 days later, they've got everyone together, all the bags packed, all the coats on, all the right shoes on the right feet, the left shoes on the left feet, and then they can go. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but there was some kind of delay. Um, I reckon it was something like that. But all these people that are heading out when they arrive, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us this explicitly in the text that there's an expectation. But I think if you're taking a four-month trip that's going to take you 900 miles to walk somewhere, on foot, there's no planes, there's no cars, and you're going back to your ancestral home where you knew in the past God had done amazing works, you'd be going back with some expectation in your heart of God doing something amazing. Ezra is expecting to make a difference. And I think Ezra is expecting to make a difference because Ezra goes back as a man who knows the word of God. Ezra is expecting God's word to make a difference when they land in Jerusalem. He's expecting to teach it and he's expecting people's hearts and lives to be changed. 
And that's, you know, if that's what Ezra's expecting, he's hoping that God's going to do a work when he gets there. I mean, we can stand up and we can teach God's word and we can expect and long for God to do things. But a lot of the time it depends on those people who are listening if they're going to be willing to hear it and willing to change. I think it's a great challenge, though, isn't it, to think, actually, personally, am I ex- when I come to church, am I expecting God to speak to me in a way that will make me long to want to change to be more like Jesus? Are we asking God, through his word, to reform us to be more like him? I mean, Ezra's hoping that the people in Jerusalem are longing for this being reformed from the inside. And then what will they do when that comes? And how will they know that God's speaking to them? Surely if they're being challenged on things that inside they know are wrong, when Ezra speaks God's word, they know that they've got to, got to take notes. They've got to listen. Or not, is the case. You know, they may or they may not listen. We'll get into some of the things that Ezra teaches in the next few chapters. So, that's a good challenge, isn't it? Do we come to church expecting God to speak to me? Do I long for God to change me? And then when he does speak to me, will I actually respond? Or will I just think it's probably a bit, bit hard work, so I'll not bother? Okay. So we've looked at those things. So let's have a little brief recap on who is he? It's Ezra, who's you know, better late than never. He has turned up eventually in chapter 7 of 10 chapters in his book. Who is he? Well, I thought ultimately, if I break it down like this, we can see that Ezra in his life, he was devoted to at least these three things. Firstly, he was devoted to the study of God's word. It's something that crops up through this passage. He knew what God had said. I don't think it would be a big jump to say that Ezra knew it off by heart. The book of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. That's an awful lot to know off by heart, but I'd be pretty certain he'd know it all. But there's something else there, isn't there? He didn't just know what God said. Ezra was a person who knew the God that had said it. Ezra had a relationship with God, so that what God said, he took to heart, and he took it to be something really important. If he knew the God that said it, what he said became more important to him. Secondly, Ezra was devoted to obedience. Clearly God had called him to go back to Jerusalem from Babylon. He must have had a nice, sort of fairly cushy lifestyle in exile. But he found God's word compelling enough to pick up his mat pick up all his house and his family and go. And I think he obeyed God all the time out of love and not out of duty. He didn't just think, I've got to do this because it's my job as a priest. But he did it because he really, really loved God. And lastly, he was devoted to action. Everything that he did came out of those two things. The study of God's word, the knowing God, and the obedience of God. His actions lend itself to being a great witness for God in all that he did. And when he got up and taught, people would see actually what you're teaching and what you do in your life, they match up. So maybe you've really got something. And Ezra's plan that God had given him was to go back to Jerusalem and restore real temple worship in that city. So I think that's a bit about Ezra. Then I thought about this question. What happened later on? when Israel was in another mess. So all these things have happened. There's no other history books uh, written in the Bible after this. We get the, the Psalms crop up later on than this, but they were written, written before. We get the books of the Minor Prophets, all written about this time. There's no other history books. There's about 400 years gap before we hit the New Testament. And Israel was in a bit of a mess. What happened when Israel was in another mess? 
ultimately, they needed another, another person. They get another priest who has the grandest entrance in the Bible. If you look in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, you'll find an enormous genealogy. If you look in Luke chapter 3, you'll find another enormous genealogy. And these two are for the same person. He was fairly young when he arrived. He was a baby. A bit like Ezra. Well, he was probably a baby when he arrived as well. He came and he taught. He learnt the scriptures. He was faithful. He taught the scriptures. What happened was, when Israel was in another mess, 400 years later, after the reforms Ezra had brought, a other priest came along, and this was Jesus. So I thought, who is he? So is his life similar to that of Ezra's? Jesus was devoted to the study of God's word. But the amazing thing about this is, it's not quite the same as it is for Ezra. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God's word. And that he is the God that said it. But not only that, Jesus, from when he was young, spent time learning and digesting and taking into his mind the word of God as well. The written word, he spent time physically learning it and reading it and memorising it. He wasn't just born... And he didn't like, you know, that first sort of, I'm two minutes old, didn't, wasn't just sat there in the cradle saying, do you know what it says in Leviticus? Because I can tell you. He was crying. You know, the Bible says that he didn't, um, he's been found in human form, but he didn't take equality with God as something to be grasped. He had to learn all the scripture from a baby, even though he was the word of God and he was the God that said it. He spent time to learn it. He studied it and he was devoted to it. He was devoted to obedience. He knew that God's word was right. He knew that it was compelling. And when it came to it, he obeyed God out of love. There was no duty there in his heart. It was all love that he wanted to to show to God. He wanted to show him his obedience. And then Jesus' actions. We know from reading through the Gospels that Jesus' life lent itself to witness. When he taught God's word and the way that he lived, they matched up perfectly. Even all the times the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes they wanted to trip him up and trick him and like, you know, see if they could catch him out. Every time, Jesus, he never fell for it. He always you know, managed to turn it back on them and his life lent itself to the perfect witness. The teaching that he gave was you know, matched by a, a godly life. And ultimately, Jesus' plan wasn't to bring um, worship back to the temple Jesus was hoping to bring a spiritual revival to Israel and to restore real worship, not just temple worship, because he was going to do away with all that. And the result of all this, that Jesus' study, his obedience and his action, the result of that was that Jesus went to the cross out of love. He didn't go because he was forced. He went out of obedience and out of love for God. He went to the cross knowing that he had done no wrong. He went and he died on the cross Because you and I have done things wrong and Jesus takes that from us on his death. And that can leave us with a a good question. Who am I? Am I somebody who is devoted to study? Do I know what God says in his word? Do I spend time reading what God has said? These are words that God has carefully through through history given to us in all sorts of different forms. We've got it in paper, we've got it on our phones, some of us. We can get it on the internet. We can get it wherever we are. Do we actually spend time reading God's word and knowing what it says? But do we know the God that says it? Do we spend time worshipping that God, spending time in prayer, just getting to know him? 
Are we obedient to God's word? You know, do we, when we read it, do we find what he says compelling? And do we obey what God asks us to do out of love and not duty? Are we willing to, to say, you know what? I'll give up things that I like because I like God even more. I love God to the extent that I'm willing to give up things that I used to like. And ultimately, do our actions, does our life lend itself to witness like it did for Israel and it did for Jesus? And are the actions that we do backed up by a godly life? If I share the gospel with somebody and they look at my life, can they say they match up? Or will they say there's, there's too many differences there for me to find what you're saying compelling? Because you say this, but you live this. How does that work out? Sometimes I wouldn't like to ask my friends uh, the result of that question. So I thought then, when it comes to God's word, am I willing to let God's word reform me from the inside out and not just change things on the outside so I look like I'm being reformed by it? Am I willing to let God change my heart and the things that are going on inside? I thought, will I be humble enough to let things go? Things that are, are sinful or, or unbiblical, will I be willing to let things that I've held on to so tightly in my life, will I be willing to let them go? And other things I thought, will I be willing to set my priorities right? Will I be willing to put God's glory above everything else? I think this is quite you know, topical almost for us as a church. Will I be willing to put, to put God above all sorts of other things? I mean, it's, you know, we've changed the time of our church. In lots of places, you couldn't do that. Will I put God's priorities above ours? Will I accept the, the, you know, the time that we have church? Does it matter what kind of building we meet in? The style of music we use to worship? The clothes that we wear when we come into church? I spilled a little bit of barbecue sauce on my shorts earlier. Haven't had time to change. Um, but I thought in the end, you know, God doesn't really mind. So, um, you know, will we let God's love for us and our love for God shape the traditions that we may hold on to so tightly? Everything that we hold on to, will we let God shape it and be willing to listen to him in all these things? So as we close, I want to give you this verse from the New Testament. On the theme of better late than never, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent you the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ultimately, better late than never, Jesus comes into the world. Israel were in a mess. Ultimately, we as a people are in a mess. Jesus came and he died. And he didn't die just for those people then or just for people in the past. Jesus died on the cross for us, for our sins that we've committed. And this passage tells us so, you know, under the law, we'd, like, we'd be condemned by the law. But Jesus comes and he dies. So those people who are under the law can be redeemed. All our sins can be taken on Jesus as he dies on the cross. God can look at us. And the amazing thing about this passage is that when God looks at us through the eyes of Jesus, if we put our faith and our trust in him, he doesn't see us as you know, sort of people who are full of sin, he sees people who are pure and blameless. And not only that, it says that we've received the right to be adopted as sons. God sees us as his sons and daughters if we know Jesus and have our sins forgiven by him. He doesn't see us people who, is, who will be objects of his wrath, but people who he will call his children and be proud to do so. He puts his spirit in us so that we can cry out to him as Abba Father. Ultimately, the cost that, that God paid for us was his son. Jesus came and he died 
And he, he swapped his son for us so that he can have more sons and daughters among us. And Jesus was raised back to life. I think it's just amazing to think as we finish. When Israel was in a mess, God sent a priest. Ultimately, the whole world was in a mess. God sent his son, who was the perfect great high priest. He lived and he died and he rose again so that you and I can have our sins forgiven. We can be brought back into a relationship where we can worship God, like the Israelites were, were brought into a place where they could worship God um, because Ezra helped them. Jesus does that. He dies, he comes back to life so that you and I can know God. Our sins can be forgiven and we can worship him again.